Have you ever looked at the world that we live in? Perhaps um, you're watching the news and wondered if God is really in control. Uh, Have you ever experienced a situation in your own life that caused you to ask that question? Is God really in control? I'm sure that in our darkest moments, we've all questioned God, questioned God's promises, maybe even questioned God's goodness, maybe even questioned God's very existence. And I think that's largely because we can't always see what God is doing. Uh, The book of Ruth is really helpful in those times of doubt because it shows that God is at work in the world and in our lives, even when we can't see it. Uh, Broadly speaking, there are three ways that God works in the world. The first is miracles. This is God's visible hand of intervention. We see lots of miracles in the Bible. The ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the uh, raising of the dead, the sight returned to the blind, lepers healed, lots of miracles in the Bible. And we believe that God still does miracles today. That said, you won't see any miracles in the book of Ruth, nothing overtly supernatural. The second way that God works in the world is through his invisible hand of providence. Uh, This has to do with the way that God guides us and orders events and situations to bring about his purposes. So there's God's visible hand at work seen in miracles, and there's God's invisible hand at work, which is what we call providence. The third way that God works in the world is through his people, ordinary people like you and me. Actually, God can work through people who aren't Christians. God can work through whole nations. But the most usual way that God works in the world is through Christians, through the church, the body of Christ. Of course, miracles, providence, and God's people are all interconnected. They're all woven together. Uh, God doesn't say, right, I want to accomplish this. Do I use miracles or do I use uh, providence? Or do I use my people? No, God can and does use any combination of all three. So let me give you an example. A Christian man, let's call him Christian, not very imaginative, but it'd be easier to follow. So Christian is at the airport and his flight gets delayed. So he sat in the departure lounge and he gets uh, speaking to someone who he would never have met if his flight had not been delayed. Uh, Let's call this person Ian. And so they're chatting away, and it transpires that Ian has a debilitating medical condition. Uh, So uh, Christian offers to pray for him. Ian's okay with that. And when Christian prays, Ian is healed instantly right there in the airport. So God has worked providentially because uh, Christian and Ian have met. That's why the flight was delayed. Uh, God has worked through his people, in this case Christian, who listened to Ian and offered to pray for him. And God has worked through a miracle. Ian has been healed right there uh, in the airport. So in that one situation, God would have worked through a miracle, through providence, and through his people or a person. Now, for a lot of us, we want God to work through miracles all the time. Miracles are amazing. They're wonderful. They're miraculous. 
And we think, oh, if I see a miracle or if I see another miracle, it will really build up my faith. And sometimes we can spend so much time looking for miracles that we fail to see God working in other ways. But even in Scripture, God works far more through providence and through human agency than he does through miracles, far more. You won't find any miracles in the book of Ruth. In fact, God isn't even mentioned that much compared with other books of the Bible. The narrator's voice in the book of Ruth doesn't attribute anything to God, doesn't say that God actually does anything. What this story gives us is an amazing example of God working through providence and through human agency. So back to where I started. Sometimes we look around the world or we look at our own lives and we say, what is God doing? And if we go to the book of Ruth, the first part of the first verse says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So straight away we see that there was plenty to make the doubters doubt in the times of Ruth. Uh, Firstly, it was the time of the judges. Before Israel had kings, the nation was ruled by judges who were kind of like tribal chieftains. Uh, This was a time of catastrophic moral failings, idolatry, dissipation, sexually depraved behavior. It was a complete mess. And we read the book of Judges and we think, how on earth will God's purposes ever be fulfilled through this nation? What is God playing at? And I expect a lot of people at the time were asking the same thing. On top of that, we read that there was a famine in the land. And the focus shifts uh, from this nation ruled by judges. And that term, that word judges, would evoke strong emotions in a Jewish reader uh, who would remember this terrible time in Israel's history. So the focus shifts from that to the problems of a particular family led by a man named Elimelech. Elimelech's family lived in Bethlehem, and they were really struggling because of this famine, which is ironic because Bethlehem actually means house of bread. So it's like God's people are starving at Costco. Things were bad. So on a personal level, Elimelech might have been saying, where is God in all this? What is God playing at? When we experience pain, heartbreak, difficulty, persecution, and we can't see what God is doing, we can respond in one of two ways. We can trust in God's promises and persevere, or we can turn away from God and try to fix things on our own. Corrie ten Boone put it like this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the driver. Faced with a famine, Elimelech, metaphorically speaking, jumped off the train and uh, he took his whole family with him. Instead of staying with God's people in Israel, he moved the whole family to Moab. And you might say, well, that sounds reasonable. He's just trying to escape the famine and save his family. But Moab was only about 80 kilometers away, so the chances are things weren't a lot different there. And in any case, The Moabites were Israelites' enemy. They were banned from worshipping in the Jerusalem temple because they had prevented uh, Israel from passing through their land when Israel were fleeing from slavery in Egypt. 
Uh, They were extremely oppressive and aggressive towards Israel. They engaged in all kinds of evil practices, including human sacrifice, child sacrifice. Uh, They tried to control nature by engaging in um, lewd and corrupt sexual practices to try and manipulate the gods into giving them a good harvest. Moab was a very dark place. Admittedly, at the time, Israel wasn't a whole lot better. Nevertheless, it was very clear that the Israelites were to remain separate from the Moabites. A drug addict will never overcome his addiction if he's hanging out with people who are frequently using drugs. And God wanted his people to remain separate from the surrounding nations so that they could get back on track with his plan for them. There was no future for them over there in Moab. In taking his family to Moab, Elimelech was turning his back on God, his people, and all that they were supposed to stand for. You know, sometimes we can see a similar thing happen in the church. You know, if a person or a family is going through a really tough time, instead of staying in the church, trusting God and working through it, they leave the church, move further and further away from God, and try to solve things on their own. This is what Elimelech was doing. And it's obvious from the way the book of Ruth is written that Elimelech had made a really bad choice. Elimelech took his family to Moab to escape death, and death is all they found there. Elimelech himself died. His sons Mahlon and Kilion married Moabite women, but then about 10 years later they died too. It's a complete tragedy, especially for Elimelech's widow, Naomi, who has now lost everyone that she left Bethlehem with. So Naomi is now a widow with no sons, no grandchildren, no means of providing for herself, certainly no means of providing for her two widowed daughters-in-law. Now that's a tough situation. That is a tough situation. But now we see a different response to tragedy. Where Elimelech turned away from God, Naomi turns towards God. Verse 6 says, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Naomi's thoughts turned to the Lord and she prepared to return home. Now this is not just a physical returning home. It's also a spiritual return. Naomi is in effect returning to God. She's repenting. Repentance literally means to turn around. We have a choice, and every human being has this choice. We can face towards sin. We can orientate our lives towards sin, but that means having our back turned to God. Or we can turn our back on sin and face God, orientate our lives towards God. And physical realities in the Old Testament often have a corresponding spiritual meaning, and that's certainly the case here. Naomi's return is not just a return to Bethlehem, it's a return to God. Elimelech and his family left Judah and headed to Moab. In a spiritual sense, they uh, they turned their back on God, they turned towards sin, turned towards this evil and corrupt nation. But now Naomi turns back to Judah, she turns back 
to God. And when we've read the whole story, we'll see that this is the point where things started to change for Naomi. Uh, But she can't see it at the time. So Naomi takes this road to Judah uh, with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And they've not gone very far. And she says to her daughters-in-law, go back to the homes of your mothers. Because she recognizes that their prospects are pretty dismal if they remain with her. Now, as always, we need to understand the sort of cultural background to uh, get to grips with some of these conversations that are taking place. So uh, in that culture, if a woman died young, the husband's brother might uh, marry the widow so that she'd be cared for in the family. Well, there are no brothers. And Orpah and Ruth can hardly wait uh, for Naomi to to marry and have more uh, children. It's a ludicrous scenario. One, Naomi is too old, and two, it, for that to happen, by the time Orpah and Ruth remarried, they'd be marrying men half their age. And that's what this conversation is about in verses 11 to 13. Naomi says this, uh, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come... Yeah, we've got... Yeah, great. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. What kind of future is there for Orpah and Ruth in Bethlehem? What man from Judah is going to want to marry a despised Moabite widow who comes with kind of like a two-in-one offer that comes with a bitter elderly mother-in-law. It's not an appealing prospect. And widows were extremely vulnerable in that culture. So going back with Naomi, they're likely to remain widows and remain vulnerable. On the face of it, going with Naomi was not a wise move for these two women. But at first they protest. We will go back with you to your people, they say. You get the sense that with Orpah, it's maybe a a bit of a false protest. We make false protests all the time. It makes us feel less guilty. You know, would you like another slice of cake? Oh, no, not. I couldn't possibly. I'm being good. Are you sure? Oh, okay, then, if you insist. So Orpah and Ruth, sorry, so Orpah, rather, was easily talked out of it, but Ruth was adamant. It says that Ruth clung to Naomi. Ruth was a woman of great moral character. She's loyal and willing to take responsibility for her mother-in-law. She won't let Naomi go it alone, even if it comes at great cost to herself. And this is a lesson that our culture perhaps needs to relearn. And I think the church should lead the way in this. I'm talking about how we care for our elderly relatives, particularly our parents, because there are people up and down the country in nursing homes and care homes who are never visited, who never receive a phone call, and are pretty much completely cut off from everyone. And that should not happen. Now, in terms of caring for elderly parents, I I was very fortunate. I had a great example of this when I was growing up. Uh, When I was about seven, my nana died. And my grandpa moved to our village to be closer to my, uh, to my family. Um, but shortly after he moved, he had a massive stroke. I think maybe he had um, two or three. And he was left 
severely disabled. He was paralyzed down one side of his body. So his care needs were too great. We couldn't, he, he couldn't live at home with us. Uh, but he went into a nursing home about 10 or 15 kilometers away. And every Sunday, every Sunday, without fail, my father would go and collect my grandpa from the nursing home, bring him home so he'd spend the day with us. And he had one good arm and one good leg. And he would maneuver himself, when no one was looking, he'd maneuver himself to the drinks cabinet. And he'd, <laughs> he'd help himself to a very generous measure of whiskey. And I think he'd do that several times during the course of the morning. So at the dinner table, because of all this whiskey, for some reason it used to make him sneeze. And when he sneezed, the food that was in the paralyzed side of his mouth would be fired all over the table. So when we could see this sneeze coming, and there was always a bit of warning, it was a, <gasps> we'd all lift up our plates so that we'd avoid this tsunami of Sunday roast. Now this is a, this is a, a kind of, a, a sort of comical memory, but you know, that's what it means to love our elderly relatives, you know, to, 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 to experience all those kind of things. It's, it's okay. It's okay to have those things happening in the home. And I love my grandpa. And I love the fact that he came round on a Sunday. And although he couldn't talk, I loved talking to him. Uh, I loved showing him things. And he would always take a real interest in what I was showing him. I'm so grateful to my parents for the way that they cared for him. And as I wrote this, I wondered, well, why as a teenager didn't I go and see him more often in the nursing home? I could have done that. And and I look back and I regret that, actually. And now I think of my own parents and Tissa's parents who are in three different countries. I wonder how we're going to care for them further down the line. These are important questions. Personally, I'm hoping that they'll be able to come and live with us. Of course, every situation is different. Some people are estranged from their parents through no fault of their own. Uh, others, like me and like many others in this church, have parents who are living overseas. The level of care needed will vary tremendously from person to person. Uh, there are a lot of variables. But as Christians, we do need to wrestle with this. We do need to wrestle with this. What does loyalty and responsibility look like when it comes to our parents? And are we willing to make sacrifices? Now, I'm not prescribing any particular course of action, and every situation is different. But I'm just saying that you know we read a story like Ruth, and we should really think about this. And within the church as well, we're a family, aren't we? And so the older generation in our church, we should look at them as being like our mothers and our fathers. And we should make sure that they're cared for. Uh, cared for in a way unlike anything you see out there in the world. This is really important, and I think Ruth hammers this home. We need to, pastoral care is not just for the pastoral care team. Pastoral care is something that everyone in the church should benefit from, and it's something that everyone in the church should be involved in. And, and two weeks ago, we heard these words from Philippians 2, look first to the interests of others. And that's exactly what Ruth did, isn't it? She says to Naomi, and I think we got this, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even de death separates you and me. 
Not only is Ruth entirely selfless, but it appears that she's converted. She's had some kind of conversion experience. She's abandoned her nation's gods, and she's put her life in the hands of the one true God of Israel. So the two come to Bethlehem, and everyone said, is is this Naomi? They recognize her. It's obviously changed a bit. It's been a while, but they recognize her. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi believes that God has afflicted her, that God has abandoned her. Verse 21, I went away full with a, with a husband and two sons. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So chapter 1 ends with this massive, what is God doing moment. The nation of Israel, far from being a light to the other nations, is morally bankrupt. Naomi has lost her husband and her two sons. She's turned back to God, but her situation is still dire. Ruth has shown great loyalty and faithfulness. But now she finds herself in a very vulnerable position in a foreign land with very limited prospects. Can any of this possibly be part of God's sovereign plan? That's what we end chapter 1 with in mind. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to see God's providence combine with Ruth's faithfulness and the goodness of a man called Boaz, and we'll meet him next week. Not only will God completely reverse the fortunes of Naomi and Ruth, but he will give Ruth a special place in the genealogy of Jesus. The seemingly ordinary events of this story play a part in God's redemptive plan for the whole of creation. And in our own lives, we don't need to constantly be looking for miracles. We might see some along the way. But rather, we need to be aware that God is at work in the ordinary details of our lives and that we have a part to play in God's great plan for the whole of creation. So next time you're having a what is God doing moment, don't run away from God like Elimelech. Turn to God like Naomi. God is working out his plan and his purpose for all things. And you are part of that plan. Keep holding on. Keep trusting. The Lord will bring you through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives. And those who have been Christians the longest have probably got the most evidence of that. When we look back over the course of our lives, we can see so many times that you've carried us through, so many times that you've guided us and helped us and shaped our lives and our circumstances, even though at the time we we had no idea, we weren't aware of what you were doing. And we pray that we'll keep trusting you, putting our faith in you. Help us to be loyal. Help us to take responsibility. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be your people in your families and in our own families, uh, both our church family, our, our, our blood families. Help us to love people as you have loved us and to continue on the way that you've set before us. 
And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.